This is Monica Perez joined once again for our final installment of our series on the Tavistock Institute is Courtney Turner. And we are going to talk about what's happening now, what you can see in the news, in the world that comes straight out of Tavistock. Right, Courtney? How are you doing? I am doing well, thank you. How are you? Fine, thank you. But I actually asked um, a friend and did a little perusing myself to send me some uh, headlines just straight out of like the Tavistock Institute right now. And we were Ooh. both like, what the heck? I mean, I'm literally just going to read you one thing on the name of the article uh, of this article is Tavistock Awakening Organizations. And it refers to the century of the self, which I don't know if you remember that. It was a BBC documentary. It was great. It was about Freud. It says, but this is the century of the group. Nothing could scare me more. Nothing could be more obviously collectivist. And then another article, it says, uh, it's time for the Gnostic recusivists or something. Uh, anyway, it's about just fomenting Gnosticism, which I still have a hard time truly defining, but it's literally written on one of the front page articles in the Tavistock. So I'm dying to dig into Tavistock and the here and now. That's crazy um, because I feel like everything that leads up to now in Tavistock builds up to that. That's like all of their group dynamics research, all of their, even their very early journals that like the first Humanist Manifesto, it was all about being man-centered. It was co-authored by John Dewey. I don't even know where we left off last time. I know, I know. I actually meant to listen to the last five minutes of our conversation. <laughs> Let's see, where did we leave off? That's actually probably a good place to start just because the first Humanist Manifesto was in 1933. We did go through all of John Dewey and how he's connected to Stanley G. Hall and William James and Wilhelm Bundt. Um, but the whole point of that was that man no longer believed that, that they didn't believe that man had a soul in the biblical sense of the word. And it was all about being man-centered. Um, and then it led to the Sixth International Congress of Philosophy at Harvard University, which was uh, before the Humanist Manifesto. Um, but it was where they stated that soul or consciousness is now of very little importance. Behavioralism saying the funeral dirge while material, the smiling heir arranges a suitable funeral for them. So this is very much like the Gnostic type premise. Um, of course, I, we, so yeah, I don't know where we left off, but we, we did start with the, we did cover the Tavistock Clinic, right? The Tavistock Institute of Medical Psychology. Yeah, that was in the origin. That was in the earlier days. Reset my timeline here. What was happening kind of with Tavistock in the 60s? I know, I don't know if you had this in your list, but I know that Mick Jagger's first girlfriend, Marianne Faithful, I think her father was at the Tavistock Institute. I think she was the one who was a masoch, as in masochism. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, yeah, she was. Well, and he went to London School of Economics, they and I just wonder, I, I don't even you know, know if he knows, like, I'm just saying yeah. it's kind of funny that, I just feel like they, the cultural, you know, the counterculture was. was a Tavistock creation, which may make sense because, like, when you look at the anti-war movement, and I, if you hear some of the hidden tapes of Nixon, it seems like Nixon is legit old school and doesn't want this stuff. Like, it's not like he's in on the CIA plot that, like, Gloria Steinem works for the CIA. Like, that was, or the Students mm -hmm. for Democracy or whatever work for the CIA. They were behind some of the yeah. protests. They were creating that dialectic. But it just shows you that, like, this thing goes deep. Like, there are different levels. And I feel like maybe the answer is... Tavistock and like the mothership and the CFR and that kind of stuff coming out of England was really driving that cultural revolution. And people like Nixon weren't even aware that it was, you know, a level of the chessboard kind of higher than he was. You know, I didn't do too much investigating on Nixon and how aware he was. Oh, no, I'm just I'm just pointing out like Tavistock could be the hidden hand that even our own face jobs don't know about. They don't have any contact with it. They know the CIA exists, but they don't know that the CIA's agenda might be set by some international or foreign organization, or maybe the UK does run the US. I just don't know. Well, I, actually, I think that Tavistock was working with a lot of players from the CIA, 
of course, the OSS, then it became the CIA. Um, just before we get to that, I I think it's interesting to note, just because it's related to that and kind of set the tone, there was, in 1942, there was a war office board. So this was for World War II. They were setting the tone for, you know, all the psych- uh, the psychological warfare group. And there was an act, it, all the developments and all the techniques were from this Tavistock group. And uh, their methods were later developed for use by the Civil Service Selections Board and Unilever, many of those types of companies. And uh, it was a scheme de- devised by the British Army psychiatrists during World War II to select potential officers of the British Army. I won't go too much into that because that's like a whole tangent, but it was pretty interesting because it's where a lot of these like psychological testing comes from. It comes out of these war boards uh, for World War II. So you're saying that Tavistock was involved in how to choose the officers for the UK? And they actually had a division in uh, the British uh, Army and the psychological warfare unit. Because now, like, corporations and stuff would do give, some of them at higher levels anyway, actually, I think it's probably commonplace at this point that they're doing psych tests. Yeah. You know, for, like, promotions and stuff. Well, a lot of that comes out of Tavistock also, because that comes out of, like, the group dynamics, you know, with Kurt Lewin and with right. John Rawling-Reese and Wilfred Byan and Eric Trist. Just as an aside, like, I have, some of those things are just crap, but... Some of them, you know, are kind of valid. Like, this person would be a good leader or this person would fit into our culture. I mean, I guess it, it can't it can't be totally invalid or right. it exactly. hang it around. It, and I think it's less about whether or not they're valid. I think it's more about what's the intention behind it. Yes, right. So I don't think that the discoveries they made were, like, awful crap, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, I think yeah. they, they discovered a lot of very accurate things. And that's why they're so effective in social engineering the masses. And that also points out that, so I'm sure this is hand in hand with like what World Economic Forum probably relies heavily on this stuff when they discover like the future of labor or whatever. But it just shows you that if you're if you're setting the rules, businesses just follow them. Like you could say capitalism is just figuring out the rules and capitalizing on them. You know what I mean? So you can get massive adoption of all of this stuff, DEI, ESG, whatever, psych stuff, just because you think that's, as a businessman, you think that's the environment you have to operate in. It's like almost a self-fulfilling. That's why I think they spend so much money on propaganda is to like get us to think like this is the future. And then you get managers to implement this stuff. Every consultant under the sun, Bain or whatever, will tell you to do this stuff. It's the future. And then it just becomes it. So I don't even think it's this sinister or this conspiracy that involves 100,000 people. It just has to be, you know, whoever sets the tone for expectations. Futurists. I think futurists. You know what that is? Yeah. Yeah. And most uh, most of the people at Tavistock were futurists. In fact, that was like right, okay. most of the names of their, like, their journals had futurists in them or futures or something. Yeah, they act like it's prediction, but it's it's planning. planning. That's why they're such, that's why they're so precious. They're so good at it. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty easy to predict the future when you plan it. So um, yeah, they call them psychological pointers. Uh, they were used to help highlight areas, psychological members of the um, war boards, Wow, that's crazy. It's like if you pick the right psychological profile, you know the answer. It's like you want, if you want psychos on the front lines, just test for that. Right, exactly. And that's what was so interesting about it because they they call them intelligence tests, but they were really, uh, they were, they really weren't. It was war office selection boards. That's, That's what the actual office was called. And they weren't, they were tests of mental ability and so they included verbal, nonverbal reasoning tests and a ver- version of Raven's progressive metric that was specifically created for the, the War Office Selection Board to better distinguish between those at the highest end of the mental ability scale. Various psychological pointers were used to help highlight areas of psychological members of these uh, War Office Selection Boards to follow up in later op- intervie- interviews or observations. And they were determined by... So they, and the board of the psychologists were Jock Sutherland, Eric Trist. Eric Trist, who gets relevant when we're going to get to the 60s because his son was Alan Trist, who was the producer for The Grateful Dead. Um, and then Isabel Menzies-Lythe. 
One more thing. They included a self-description, word association, and thematic a perception test. Yeah. I, I want to know what that is because I've heard of it, but we've all taken so many tests. Like I'm sure they could they could distill a psychological profile on us and if they wanted to quite easily. What's the uh what's the A asymptomatic therapy test or whatever? A perception. <laughs> what is it for? A perception. So it's like your, you know, uh like perceptibility, like uh of uh of yourself and uh dynamics. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I feel like I'm self-aware, not just like conscious, but I just remember when I used to be on the radio and I'd be like, oh, I do this bad, I do that bad, I do this bad. And the guy would be like, you're so right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, thank you. Like, So you really understand. It's mostly being able to like detect themes and like parse out things in very ambiguous situations. Oh, oh, interesting. Because I always think pattern recognition is the thing, but discernment, that sounds like it's a test for discernment, which is also pretty good. Yeah, I, I guess it would be, except that I don't really see them as like masters of uh, wanting real. Well, but I mean, discernment, if you want to say it from a moral point of view, right, is one thing, right. but discerning differences yes. like that, that's a valuable skill, like to understand nuances. Mm-hmm. So I think it was similar to like not the raw shock because the raw shock were very ambiguous. You know, those are the ink blot tests. Um, but there's like they have these picture um, sequence type tests in psychology, and I don't know if this is the same one that they were using during the just because I haven't seen the actual pictures. But I know in like IQ tests they use these uh, pictorial references, and they're often used to dis- uh, determine social intelligence. And people who score like very high on those are more likely to have psychopathic tendencies. Wow. So people who score highly are sociopaths? Wow. Because they can separate social from who they are? Well, it's because they're good at size. So the people often talk about psychopaths and they say how they have no empathy. And there's an element of truth in that. But what people often think is, oh, therefore they're you know, they don't really feel charmless. Right. But they're masters recognizing empathy. Wow. That's why they're such good manipulators because they're not trapped by it. So like somebody who is a very empathetic person uh, might, you know, like they, they would feel deeply and then it's hard to detach. Whereas somebody who can recognize empathy would know how, but doesn't get, you know, moved by it, would know how to use that to manipulate somebody else or a situation. And people who score very high socially tend to be good at not only recognizing social dynamics, but, you know, manipulating them and using them to serve their own uh, means. And Clint is saying this still goes on. He said every single Marine uh, goes through three days of psycho. Yeah. Interesting. They, yeah, the Marines are are tested. And that's interesting because I always thought like the Marines were the most intelligent. And I was talking to someone recently who was a Marine. He was saying that they're tested a lot on like social dynamics and uh, perception. Wow. Yeah, which I thought interesting. was very interesting. I, I didn't tell him that, you know, that <laughs> it doesn't mean that's, you're a psychopath. But somebody yeah, who scored... Could, but it could. But it could. <laughs> it's, it's a good, they are looking for the psychopaths. Well, and that, that's where I was going with it. because So I very firmly believe that a lot of these studies that were done, particularly these wartime research studies that were done under Tavistock, paved the way for MK Ultra. And we have, you know, we have some declassified documentation on MKUltra, but a lot of it still remains covert and withheld from the masses. So we don't actually know the full extent of what they were doing in with MKUltra research, but we do know that they did uh, identify dark triad personality traits and they did figure out ways to select for them, create them, and exacerbate them. And I think it's because those personality traits are really good assets. You know, I mean that in like the literal sense of like being an asset, a federal asset, a, you know, an asset to further their agenda. Because you think about like the the dark triad, right? It's Machiavellianism, it's uh, psychopathy and narcissism. And a narcissist is, is really easy to push their buttons, right? Like you you butter them up, you flatter them, you, uh, mm-hmm. you, know, you, you appeal to their ambitions, and then it's pretty mm-hmm. easy to utilize them and to steer them. Uh, somebody with Machiavellian tendencies and psychopathic tendencies is also pretty easy to 
uh, steer them is also they're great leaders. Uh, so are narcissists. Yeah. They tend to be very char- charismatic. They're big personalities. Um, you know, they, I'm not saying that all assets are these traits. That's what um, I heard about Clinton, Woodrow Wilson, and even Jimmy Carter yeah. is that they were great at being doing the bidding of others because they were so egotistical, probably because they were so smart yep. that they just didn't think that they could be manipulated like that. And not that I doubt Bill Clinton really needed to be manipulated, but... He actually bought into it and he thought all of these things were wonderful. Yeah, he was down. So I don't know if he counts, but just this idea that ego is, they look for that. I think a great example is Trump. Interesting. Yeah, because it's something has to explain it. Yeah, because I, I, I mean, it's not, that I, I, I'm not like, I, I like a lot of what Trump did. I'm, I, I think he did some great things. I think there are some things I wish he did differently or, you know, I, I, I think he's far. He's an actor. So I just don't know if he's a bad actor, but he's definitely just acting. And he probably thinks, well, that's what politics is. It's, you know, Hollywood is Hollywood. Uh, DC is Hollywood for ugly people. But I don't think he's sinister. I, I actually think it's also that he's he's led. So a lot of times people, you know, a lot of people have questions about, like, was he a nefarious actor or did they, was he manipulated? And I don't really think he's a nefarious. I, I don't know the man personally, so I, I, yeah. I'm i not speaking. I don't have, like, right. goods on that. But just my opinion, observing, I actually think he genuinely thinks he's doing some good. I think that he really, I think he loves America. That seems to be That's what my mom always says. I don't care what you say. He loves America. And I'm like, he, he, he loves himself, though. Right, too. exactly. And he, I think he thinks he's, he has grand ambitions and he thinks that, you know, he's very important and he's got a massive ego. And I think in some ways that really served him and served the country, quite honestly. Um, but in other ways, I think it made him uh, more susceptible to being misled by, you know, the powers that shouldn't be. Um, because I don't think he, I think he was a little bit blind to it. And I think he, I think part of why he, he refuses to apologize, you know, for all of the, uh, you know, injuries from the injections and he just doubles down. Part of it, I think, is strategic. You know, that's one of the first rules of politics. Like, you don't apologize. Right. Um, but I think it's also like he's very proud. It's like he he made this huge business move uh, maneuver and it was strategically. It was impressive. Unfortunately, the results of it are democide. So it's like, are you proud of your chest move or like you care about the people? I don't know. Like, Yeah. No, I, I, I don't think he, I don't think he's the sinister one. I think he just doesn't realize how it, he's yeah, being I manipulated. I used to say from the very beginning, you think he's taking this country in the other direction. But what I think is he is the arrow getting pulled back. Yeah just to be released and catapult us into this reactionary future, yeah. you know. I think so, too. Uh, whatever. So I still think, and I and I would just say, like, at the end of four years, I don't know what the excuse is going to be, but we're going to be worse off. We're not going to be headed in the right direction. I don't know how it's going to play out. You might not blame him, but I'm just telling you. Because it was clear that it was a PSYOP of some kind. Nobody that that contrarian, that outside the system could ever, I mean, Ron Paul won oh, Iowa in 2012, like, and they didn't even announce it. <laughs> like, it wasn't even part of the record until the after the RNC convention. I mean, they can suppress anybody and they, they don't. They promoted him and there had to have been a reason. Anyway, yeah. that's something I've all said before and I'm totally wasting your time. No, so no, talking. no. I, I totally agree. And I, I yeah. And I, I think that that's something that they probably were uh, looking for when they're creating all these personality tests. I think that that is definitely. Um, so they then used it, of course, of, they used all of these testing for um, the OSS, the commercial enterprises, fire services, police forces. So all of our, you know, uh, governmental agencies now use, and of course the OSS became the CIA. So I'm sure the CIA, right, I think that's a logical uh, conjecture that they use it as well. Um, and then uh, I, I just wanted to cover them because they called themselves the Invisible College. This group uh, who I had mentioned before, of course, it was like Eric Tr- uh, Eric Trist and Isabel Menzies-Lith, John Stock Sutherland. Of course, the most famous of that is Eric Trist. Um, and they developed the Invisible College in reference to 
uh, they were the precursors to the Royal Society, right? And from there, they formed the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations. So, of course, we we went through the Wellington House, the Tavistock Medical Clinic, uh, or the Tavistock Clinic. Um, but then, of course, it became Tavistock Institute of Human Relations through a grant from the Rockefellers that made <laughs> I know, that's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, all right. So we were going to go into the 60s and uh, the, let me put some of these notes in some sort of order. Um, the 60s were, yeah, I was totally debating like where to go with all of this and I got very derailed into the 60s. So I guess. Yeah, I know the feeling. It just fall into a rabbit hole. I mean, it's just crazy when you try to do the research. It's overwhelming. It is. So give me whatever you got. We don't have to stick well, to any kind and it's of like, anything. I feel like it becomes like a, it, it's like watching a train wreck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, looking <laughs> at it today, like, though. But wait, wait, where does it go? Where does it crash? I, I have to keep keep watching no um, go to tavistock tavinstitute.org slash the dash awakening dash organization with an s hat tip to james and the audience there who provided me a little bit of side research uh this awakening stuff will it's you can see that they're manipulating the society yep. from on high and it's not like anything within the realm of what you're thinking about yeah so what do, what it's do you out think there. about that one the tavistock Awakening. I, I think, from what I can tell, it's about getting people inside organizations to follow this script of groupthink that they've been cultivating. And it, it just, it says like it's a reaction to COVID's, um, you know, isolation. And maybe part of COVID's isolation was to get people to bounce back and embrace group because they were deprived, like so. being in solitary. And I, I just wonder. Well, that's part of, uh, and I don't know if we really covered much of uh, uh, Carwin, uh, Dorwin Cartwright's uh, um, work. You know, she was, of as the principles of mass persuasion. And a lot of that, I think, really was implemented through um, COVID. But it's very much this kind of uh, reactionary type of, the, essentially, it's the mass scale application of trauma-based mind control. where, And I think that's what COVID was all about. I was wondering, so they had been trying to do these digital cities, 15-minute mm -hmm. cities, and they couldn't get employers to allow employees to work from home. And then they got it to happen. And then now the rebound of the employers once again saying, we really need people in the office and and folks are resisting that, whatever. And I wondered why mm -hmm. the propaganda didn't double down on that. Like, no, employers, you're wrong. Leave them home. And I'm starting to think because these are like, these are, they still want to control society. They're not saying they want everyone to just be in a tube trapped to a screen yet. Right. They're actually trying to shape a future society that does have a material element to it. So I feel like they're just phasing, leveling up kind of thing. Yeah. You know, digest it and move to a new paradigm, but it does still have some human interaction. A lot less, fewer people at the top for sure. Right. Well, I think all of the trauma-based mind control, because they, they talk about it and it, in all of their journals, they talk about how they're taking all this research and the focus is then to uh, test it on, you know, civilian society. Uh, so a lot of this research is done, you know, under wartime research and in, uh, you know, medical clinics, mostly wartime, but uh, there are some medical clinics, psychological clinics. But that with trauma-based mind control, what they do is it's like that, that torture that's unbearable, and then you release the grip a little bit, and the, you know the the person yes. feels like they're free. And yes, I noticed that. Breathe, and then they clamp back down again. I noticed that with myself. I was like, you know what? I can't. I got to stop with the negativity for a little while. I'm just so glad that I can, whatever, go out and yeah, not have course. to fight about wearing a mask or whatever. You know, like I was just relieved, and I had to take a breather. Yeah. Some of this, like bringing people back into the groups, uh, bringing them back into the work workforce and creating the uh, normalization is so that they can then uh, reintroduce the trauma and they'll be that much more uh, programmable. Uh, yeah, because you're afraid of going back there. 
Yeah. I'll do anything. I'm not going back, man. <laughs> do anything or, you say. Whatever your solution <laughs> is, even if it's worse than before, well, we'll just think it. Exactly. Yeah. But it literally kills parts of their brains also. So they're, yeah. So I think that that's part Actually, of it. Well, in the 60s, some people say, and I think the same thing for 9-11, is like by, by televising the trauma, which is JFK's assassination and 9-11, bodies, people jumping out of buildings. I mean, you know, they didn't really need to show that. No. But that, those are two, like, mass trauma events that I would say are the two big events that ushered in big step changes or whatever you would call it in, like, censorship, for example, and other big, big changes in our society. Yeah. Um, well, they were, Tavistock was very instrumental. We went through their radio um you know, involvement, right? Uh, 1935, Harvard psychologist Gordon Alper co-authored The Psychology of Radio with Hadley Cantrell. Uh, and Cantrell was uh, Rockefeller's uh, roommate at Dartmouth. And then Alper became the, lady, the leading uh, agent for the Tavistock Institute. And Cantrell, in 1937, would become a Rockefeller Foundation funded for the Office of Re Radio Research at Princeton University, which was established to study the influence of radio on different groups of listeners. And then in 1940, uh, he authored The Invasion from Mars. It was a study on the psychology of panic regarding the radio broadcast from H.G. Wells, War of the World. We talked about last time how Rockefeller wouldn't let him release the publication of that study for a few years. Um, but then from there, Tavistock's senior staffer, Fred, Fred Emery, who later uh, human in 1959, the Human Relations uh, Journal, began his article, Working Hypothesis on the Psychology of Television. And his this is a quote from him. He said, psychological after effects of television are considerable interest to the would-be social engineer. So they were studying how you could use television for social engineering. I think that's why it's called program. <laughs> so programming, oh my gosh. There, I, I was listening to the first Delling poll. I don't know if you know the... Um, Delling Pod, James Delling Pohl in England. It's a really good podcast. He's a great interviewer. He's one of like my favorite. There's like three or four really, really good interviewers out there. And he's one of them. And the very first thing I listened to of him, so I can't even remember who his guest was or, or any of that, but they were talking about this one CIA guy that was known to the guest who would never tell him anything about his work at all, never told him anything, what he did or whatever. All he said is, I will just tell you one thing. Never watch television. Wow. And I was like, whoa. And it must be worse now. I mean, I can see, actually, I, I miss the days of television when your family would sit together and have to agree on something to watch and whatever and interact with each other. Now, it's not only that we're all like, get our own thing in our own little spots and are totally isolated in that way. But what happens when you're watching, like my son who has Down syndrome, when he watches YouTube, he likes My Little Pony, and it quickly, like, moves towards stuff that's inappropriate, weird anime and stuff. And, like, so I'm wondering, just like when I read that article in Quartz about the NSA being a Google, a Google being an NSA project because they wanted to create birds of a feather around each person, yeah. driven, I think, by AI. Yeah. I feel like that's just happening with what you're watching. It's like not even necessarily interacting on social media, but what what they're feeding you in in these TikTok or YouTube or whatever is can be really get dark fast. Like kind of pursue your darker natures and and nobody knows what you're doing because you're not in the same room as your parents. I try to keep the, I used to have a computer in the, only, just one and it was just in an open room, like in the living room or whatever. So you could always see, but you know, when the kids go to high school, that stuff goes away. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't found this connection and I, I really strongly suspect it's there. Um, but with the, cause SEL training is using a lot of the tech ed. Um, so it's a lot of that, like they're tracking the student's behavior and then they're, it's a feedback loop. So they're programming them after they data mine them. And they watch where your eyes are. There's something where they're watching where your eyes are, like with some home testing, like you can take the exam, but they're going to watch that you're looking at the actual paper and not at the there's something like that that's like really well, actually being used. I think what they're doing that for is uh, they, uh, they there's all these videos at the World Economic Forum. The they've asked uh, 
like uh, the Pentagon, what they think uh, 2045 will look like. And they talk about the uh, brain interface with technology. And a lot of it is tracking eye movements. So you won't have to write or type things out that the right. movements will, uh, you know, interact. Well, they're probably with. training it right now. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's exactly Fuck. what I'm thinking. But, <laughs> <laughs> fun time. I have not, but what I was going to say is that I haven't seen the connection to Tavistock on that, um, but I suspect it's there. Um, but I haven't seen a direct link to the SEL training. What institutions, just off the top of your head, if you know any, that are in existence right now that you feel are one or two degrees separated from Tavistock? So the CFR, the Royal Institute of, uh, you know, Chatham House, like, is there anything that you're like, oh, Tavistock is connected to World Economic Forum, two degrees? In terms of think tanks, it would definitely be RAND and SRI. Those are kind of like the brainchild. Stanford Research Institute. Siri, for people who don't know where why Siri is called Siri. Yeah, exactly. And it was invented by a futurist from the Esalen Institute, I think. Yes. So, yes, and I was going to bring up the Esalen Institute. We'll get to that. Um, but yeah, so those would be the top two, um, I would say, right under. But they... Rand and... Rand and Standard for Research. But I would also say UNESCO is hu- like, hugely connected to Tavistock. Um, because- is that the UN kids thing or is the UN charity? Um, UNESCO is really involved in education right now. Um, but I forgot what UNESCO United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. Good for you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but they're very involved in like our education, so the particularly in the United States right now. And they're they're trying to they're doing very sneaky things where they're trying to uh infiltrate private school systems. And even homeschool under the umbrella of private school. Oh, yeah. There's a an organization called, like, the Association of Independent Schools mm-hmm. that puts out memos. So my kids, all three of my kids went to different schools. One went to public school, and the other two went to different private schools. And one was kind of on the conservative side. One was kind of on the liberal side. And when the COVID policy came down, they were all in lockstep. And I was like, they're getting a memo. They're getting a memo because they're coming out with yeah. it at the same time. And then I actually saw one of the memos. <laughs> <I was laughs> like, oh, oh, there it is. Yeah. It's from the memo. school, like the independent um, school. It's so they, I wondered about that. I was like, who the hell's behind that? It sounds just like the organization of governors and mayors and all of that. It's UNESCO. And of course, uh, one of the like founding members of UNESCO was Julian Huxley, who uh, <laughs> coined uh, transhumanism. And, uh, of course, his brother Aldous Huxley was very instrumental. He was, like, one of the lead propagandists for Tavistock. Uh, and, of course, in the connection, right, we have Thomas H- Henry Huxley, who was uh, known as Darwin's Bulldog. He was a teacher to H.G. Wells, also uh, a Fabian socialist, very involved in Tavistock. Uh, one of the actual initial authors who was invited to that meeting with 25 authors. Um, and then he taught the Huxley brothers. So there, that's there. There. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, there you go. Um, but yeah, they were, and of course, uh, UNESCO, uh, Julian Huxley was a, a eugenicist as well. And, uh, you know, some of the early, like you can look at some of the early quotes from Julian Huxley at UNESCO talking about uh, depopulation agendas. So I see that the National Association of Independent Schools mm-hmm. does, um, you know, have some overlap some articles about UNESCO, but UNESCO has something called the Associated Schools Network, Mm -hmm. which connects more than 12,000 schools in 182 countries around a common goal to build peace in the minds of children and young people. How could that possibly go wrong? Probably by, you know, what they say, like grief counseling, although I know a lot of people have benefited from it. Yeah. When like something bad happens in school and and they have all the kids, even people who didn't know the injured party or whatever do grief counseling it prolongs the the grief for some of the, like there are some studies like that so i'm just saying when you're trying to promote mm-hmm. so gender equality and mm-hmm. social justice which is what they're actually claiming to all you're doing is pointing out like when my kids came home and 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 were little kids and they were like mom did you know people are black and white and not peach and tan. And I was like, cause I would just let them say whatever they want to say. Oh, he's a peach boy. He's brown. You know, like I didn't never corrected them. And they got like programmed into labeling people on like whatever it was, Martin Luther King day. And I was like, all right, whatever. 
<laughs> well, that was a huge uh, initiative uh, with Tavistock because it's part of creating all this group identity. Um, and a lot of the Tavistock uh, members and uh, were also Frankfurt School uh, members. And of course, that, that was like one of the primary initiatives of the Frankfurt School was to create this uh, group identity, ident- which led to identity politics, uh, to strip people of individual identity so that now you're part of a group. And of course, this is why. So, see this, what, yeah. What were you going to say? So wait, this this is why what? Oh, I was just going to say this This is why you see all this uh, group fighting because it, it's so much easier to fight yes. groups than it is to fight an individual. Yeah. You're one of the only people who like notices and joins me in saying like this massive lurch to some totally European and not at all American right nationalist identity thing Mm -hmm. in this country. Like I understand, like I understand wanting a nation state instead Mm -hmm. of a world government. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, to just be 7 billion anarchists, you're probably going to end up with a world government. I get that. But, and it's good to like, you know, be on the same team, but I feel like it's obviously being weaponized. That's another thing I lay at Trump's feet is this identity politics on the right. And it just, it seems so dangerous because plus, if you only have two groups, if you have to be black or white, and I don't mean that in like the color of your skin, if you have to be left or right, or, you know, if you have to be one or the other, someone has to lose. And I just do not think that the nascent right movement is going to win. They just don't have the institutions, they don't have the weapons, and they don't really have the ideology. And well, and I would say they don't know how to play the game. I mean, they don't understand that they're the opposition is so good at playing the game and really being played. Yeah, but really this game is dialectical and that's the biggest problem. So when you talk about left, right, I mean, George Washington warned us against having political parties because he said it would be a loophole for foreign entanglement. That's exactly what we have now, right? We have these puppet masters who are uh, supranational who are pulling the strings and that's why we have a uniparty. Um, But I would also say that even when it comes to these... uh, you know, within these different groups, and you're talking about like the right just losing, it's because they're being targeted dialectically and the dialectic keeps progressing. The whole point is to create reactionaries so that they fight against you and then they can have their synthetic, you know, that's where the term yes, synthesis nice. comes from. But it's yes, really, yes. it really even more, uh, I would say more uh, aptly would be put as concretization um, because this is really, it's Hegel. And, uh, you know, I've been kind of diving into Hegel quite a bit lately. I, I'm trying to uncover, I, 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 my theory is that he was a member of the Illuminati. Whether or not he was, like, formally or not is probably actually irrelevant because it's so obvious that he was influenced um, by the Enlightened thinker, by, you know, very high-level Freemasons and by uh, literal Illuminati members, you know, by the, the theory of Illuminism. Uh, John Gottlieb Fichte, was one of his mentors who really, sh- I don't know you call him a mentor, but he was the one who really showed him. So the whole notion of like thesis, antithesis, synthesis, that's what Hegel attributed to Kant. And it was a rejection mm. of Kant's notion of the dialectic because he thought that both Plato and Kant were very abstract in their ideas uh, pertaining to the dialectic and that it remained in your head. And he was looking for something that could be, uh, and I use this term kind of loosely, wow. but like a scientific method. I, I don't really mean scientific, but really I mean a methodology because he was looking to advance the historicity of man. And, uh, you know, like the diagram is like an omega point that comes to, it's that spiral that goes to an omega point. You look at that spiral, like it's narrower as you get top, as you get to the top, the omega point. I see the omega point as being, you know, like the new world order. It's gone through many iterations of, right? There was the new underground world order. Uh, there was, uh, of course, the, uh, now we have for uh, the the UN 100 is talking about the age of global enlightenment. Of course, we have the Great Reset. It's got many names. And Woodrow Wilson was the first president to use the words new world order, that he was the first one to, United States president, to say that. You said concretization. What right. Did you so mean by that? there's a, so the way, what the words Hegel actually used, because he was trying to create this you know, as a methodology of being able to advance the historicity of man towards this omega point, he he said it was the abstract negative concrete. 
So those that was his uh, progression of the dialectic. And the negative translates to sublation, but in German, the word is afhaben. And afhaben is an interesting word because it's a, it's really, in English, it kind of translates to a very oxymoronic word because it means to cancel or tear down while simultaneously preserving and lifting up. And this is, of course, where we get the term afhaben de culture, which the Frankfurt School codified, it spearheaded with Antonio Gramsci. Uh, didn't Antonio Gramsci has this uh, quote where he talks about how socialism is exactly, I'm going to butcher the quote, I can probably find it, but essentially he's saying it's bush, It's essentially the religion necessary to overthrow Christianity. Um, and they, of course, wanted to overthrow Christianity. All of these people did um, because they saw it as standing in the way because the whole, you know, if we, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, the Illuminism or Enlightenment notion, but it is this idea of order out of chaos. I think it way precedes that, but of course, a lot of people know that term, uh, so it's familiar for people to think of it that way. Um, and of course, Christianity provides order, so I think that's it's really that that they were it, they were trying to overthrow. Um, but the Afhaven to culture, I was saying that comes from Grand Chief, right? It was that meeting in, I think it was the common turn. It was uh, 1922. Lenin called a meeting between Antonio Gramsci, uh, Georgi Lukash, and Willie Munzenberg uh, because he was very frustrated because he, you know, Marx said that the revolution would spread throughout the West. And after the Bolshevik revolution, it did not spread throughout the West. And it was Antonio Gramsci. And this can be found for those who, people question me on this all the time. They're like, I've never heard of this. Where can you find that? And it's in Antonio Gramsci's grandson's memoirs. He talks about this meeting that his grandfather had. And uh, he said that the problem was that they were looking at it as an economic revolution and that it could not be perceived that way. This had to be a cultural infiltration. And this is, just to bring it full circle, part of why Tavistock is so instrumental uh, because it was, of course, John Rawlings Reese. Uh, who talked about, and I'll just read his quote. I know I talked about it last time, but I just think it's so, uh, it, it's really bears repeating. He said uh, it was in uh, June 8, 1940, at the annual meeting of the National Council for Mental Hygiene United in the UK. And just for people to know, and this is just my commentary, but anything with the word hygiene in it, I, I think you could just substitute eugenics is basically what they were doing. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, in his yes, teaching, it was definitely. called strategic planning for mental health. And I, I just think for people to understand, this is kind of the foundation for Tavistock. He was the one who came up with the Tavistock method. That's literally what they called it. Uh, and he said, we can therefore justifiably stress our particular point of view with regard to the proper development of the human psyche, even though our knowledge may be incomplete. We must aim to make it permeate every educational activity in our national life. We have a useful attack upon a number of professions, two of the easiest of of them are naturally the teaching profession and the church. The two most difficult, although they're doing a really good job of infiltrating them now, are law and medicine. If we are to infiltrate the professional and social activities of other people, I think we must imitate the totalitarians and organize some kind of fifth column activity. If better ideas on mental health are to progress and spread as we, the <laughs> salesmen, must lose our identity. Let us all very secretly be fifth columnists. I know I read that last time, but I just think that's it's so important for people to understand that is their agenda. And that is mm -hmm. part of why until the lawsuit with the transgender clinic uh, three years ago, no, almost nobody had heard of Tavistock. And that's the reason. I think, I mean, I'm not going to like get into this whole article, but I think that's part of this Um awakening organizations it's that they want a uh, call to action uh holy crap potentially heralding an archaic revival that calls forth and ushers in a new way of seeing and being that undoes the mutilation of the euro christian inquisition this is from june 2021 i mean it's they had to have james james sent me i was just like pick the worst and he's like this wasn't even the worst this wasn't even the one he thought was the worst You'll have to send that to me because it really substantiates my theory. So I've been talking a lot about, I have this theory that there is a, what I call the new, new age. This is not a formal thing. Um, it's just an observation that I've been seeing. So what I'm seeing in the, what I would call the quote unquote truther movement, I'm seeing there is a branch of this movement that is reviving new age type concept. They think they're truthers. And this is not to, you know, 
chastise anybody in that group or to denigrate them or in any way to be pejorative. A lot of them are wonderful and doing great work. And I think they're genuinely seeking truth. However, a lot of them have really bought on to a lot of these concepts that to me just look very new agey. And I think they're being targeted. I think there is an actual movement that is designed to do this. I think this is a cultural infiltration. And it's uh I think it's most dangerous because they really think it, it's very deceptive. And these people really think they're seeking truth and that they, they found something well, and it's targeting them. It's in black and white. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was my theory. So I really want to read that. The other thing I'm going to send you is another one that James sent me art as re-evaluation colon. Everything is scattered and it's a call for contributions to the stream at the Art of Management and Organization Conference for 2024. And it's everything is scattered and the tower has collapsed. And then it has a quote, the Tower of Babel has collapsed. Everything has scattered. We have lost our unified code of symbols for understanding each other. So they're trying to rebuild. So they've destroyed and now they want, they're calling people to bring art, which is right up your alley, to foster the new world. I mean, nice work, James. He said the entire website is that bad. <laughs> he said that I just, you could you could go through anyway, whatever. Some of that stuff was more obvious though, gender. Yeah, well, they stuff, had the you know, transgender whatever. clinic. And of course there were all those lawsuits and that was what woke people up to Tavistock. I mean, I think most people, I would say like 90% of people had never heard of Tavistock before that. Oh, I agree. Um, so in a way that was great <laughs> that happened because at least it kind of blew the lid off it, but definitely send me that the website. Cause I'm going to, I just, yeah. oh, sorry. I so I will dive into that. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> um, good. yeah, but that, that very much supports my theory. Cause I think that they're trying to create the reactionary. And I think it's also worth noting, like, you know, if you look at Karl Marx, a lot of people think that he was, he was all about communism and you know, revolutionary revolutions and whatnot. And he was, but what did he say the end solution was? It was like the ultimate liberation, right? It was like that there would be a dissolution of the state completely, that there would be no states. And this goes, this harkened back to your point that you were talking about with nation states, right? That, uh, yeah, it's because they play these dialectical games because they want the extreme of something so that you have the reaction so they can tear it down. And then, of course, what what's their solution going to be? It's going to be an internationalist, supranational type of worldwide governance. Right, because they were encouraging the consolidation of production at the top. They weren't encouraging. They're like, yes, man is alienated from the fruits of his labor or whatever, but they weren't saying like, let's grow chickens. That he was saying, let's own the factory together, which of course is not no. possible. <laughs> not so it's like the difference between anarcho-capitalism and anarcho-syndicalism. Although you would say they converge anyway. Yeah, I, I don't have a solution. I'm I still, give up. I give up on I'm ideology. still working through that. I, I don't know that I'll get there because Oh, okay. Can we agree that like eggs are good and it would be nice to have your own growing well, in the backyard? Yes, and I encourage that for everybody. That's all. I'll, that's all. That's all I'll say anywhere. I'm just an agorist now. I just, <laughs> I just want to. I don't. I'm actually only a philosophical agorist because I don't know. How right. I, I'm with you on that. Although well, my fiance <laughs> does, so maybe they'll help. Us. Yeah, we're from New York. I, I mean, they're just you know. That tomato, the most I could possibly grow is well, a tomato. I, I will just, and, and of course, diving into this research doesn't help because then I become hyper aware of it. But I'm like so hyper aware of how I've been such a, I don't want to say victim, but how programmed I've been, how vulnerable I was to so much of this conditioning and programming. And I, I never would have thought of myself mm. that way. But I mean, I bought into some, mm. and I think in part because of where I grew up, because of my family, you know, they bought into a lot of these lies and a lot of this propaganda and passed it on to me. And even when I thought that I was, I mean, I, we're, none of us are impervious, but even when I thought I rejected a lot of these premises, I, my actions and my lifestyle would indicate otherwise. I was the opposite. My father from like the day, I, earliest memories was like, oh, they're behind everything. Like every TV yeah. commercial, everything. He didn't know who it was exactly, but he knew from the beginning that there was a big... I have a book, Backdoor to War, from the 50s, and he was in the Navy in World War II, and he came home, and within 10 years of coming home, he knew that, like, FDR was in wow. on it, and 
I mean, he knew that there was the cultural revolution was a total setup, and he was pretty amazing. He used to contribute to Ron Paul like in the 70s. We lived in New York, and we were absolutely broke, but Ron Paul, a congressman from Texas, my father had sent him 25 bucks every election wow. cycle. And, uh, so I had the opposite. So when I was on the radio, on a conservative radio in Atlanta, and people would call like, you know, big snaps on the Bill of Rights. And I was like, wow, really? Oh, wow. I didn't think anybody, because I'm from New York. It's like, I didn't think anybody even cared anymore. But anyway, so that's what Ron Paul tapped into, which is another reason I'm a little mad at Trump, because he hijacked that ideology that was like buried deep in a lot of our minds. And he just you know, gutted it of content and allowed just the form of like anger and frustration to be the thing. So it's form without content, in my opinion, on that. Not to go back down that road. I know people are fatigued by that. But yeah, so yeah, so you were, what, I have to ask you a personal question. Not super personal, but like, how do you think you broke free of that programming? You know, I, I mean, I, I keep saying I was really late to the party. I mean, I really woke up in 2020. And a lot of it actually was, I mean, you know, it was a combination of things. But actually, Tavistock was a huge part of my uh, awakening. Um, so, yeah, wow. I had uh, someone reached out to me, a friend of mine reached out in the middle of the night, late 2020. And it was like, have you ever heard of Dr. John Coleman? And <laughs> I said, no. And had you? And no. Wow. I, mean, I, I, I always make the joke, like, it took me forever to find the train station, then I found the high-speed rail, and I'm scrambling trying to catch up. Um, <laughs> a lot of people planted right. seeds pretty early. Like, I would definitely say, uh, even in my early 20s, you know, when I was living in New York, and I, I was an actress, I mean, I was immersed in all that. I was never on the left. I mean, I was always... I'm very sus of actresses, what? Courtney. You're very sus, yeah. I'm very <laughs> yeah, sus. of course. Because you can well, act. That's true, right? Yeah, <laughs> I know. I but you're be... super smart. Like, you, you're you also a genius. So that is probably another <laughs> suspicious true. factor. But I, could keep, I can keep asking you questions and you keep answering them because you actually know. And that usually, to me, is somebody who has done the research from a place of actual seeking knowledge and truth because you, you know the natural yeah. paths to go down. You're not trying to guide us. But I mean more like... What allowed you to open your mind to it? So a lot of people were planting seeds, like I was saying. So my early 20s, and I really, the cognitive dissonance was so high. And largely because I think I've shared this with you before, but I'll, I'll share it again for the audience, is that, you know, my father really didn't talk to me in my early childhood. It was, you know, because I was sick. I think he just had a lot of his own barriers and own issues. And really the only connections we had, I and I really realized this in 2020, were intellectual. So from a very young age, he would like run upstairs and throw books on my bed. And when I say books, I mean, I was like eight years old and he gave me the Fountainhead. He gave me uh, Thomas Sowell. Like, yes. You know, and he, not like he asked me to discuss them with him, but he would mention passing in passing, he would say something in conversation. He's like, well, didn't you read that book? You should know that. And I'm like, Okay, Dad. I mean, I was eight years old, you know. Good for him. I want to know more about him yeah. at some we, point. We'll, we'll have to, yeah. I'll have to have a personal show. I'm going to interview the, the, the personal, the yeah. <laughs> it'll be my first, like, you know, talk show. <laughs> yeah, we could totally do it if, if you think it'll be interesting. But yeah, so he was a hardcore neocon. And I didn't know that at the time, but your father, father was a hardcore, was a hardcore neocon? neocon. I always thought he was a conservative, but he really wasn't. He was a neocon. Now, my father warned me against neocons because they were warmongers. Like he was against the Iraq war. I was like, you're against the Iraq war, but Hitler. And he was like, what? And I was like, but Hitler. And he's like, can't we? <laughs> like, you're, you're skipping a few steps. Yeah. Like, okay. So my parents were the complete opposite. I mean, even to this day, my mom will say things like, oh, well, war could be good. It might, the stock market might rally. Like, you're so ah! programmed. Oh, my, my gosh. Mom is, my mom's oh, coming around. You know, mm. we, we, we've, we've worked on her. She's come a long way. And I have tremendous compassion because I look at where I was three years ago. So I, I get, you know, the programming is really deep. But so for me, I'll try to give you, make this fast. But like, essentially, people planted a lot of these seeds. And I really couldn't see it because I thought that it would mean because my father would tell me, like, don't listen to those crazy conspiracy theorists, you know, and I thought that I would lose my relationship with my father because it was really the one connection we had. So I really couldn't look at it. Around 2011, you know, I I really became awake to the Frankfurt School. And it was something that became, you know, popular 
culture conversation uh, back then, you know, because of Obama. And I, it was something very, that really sparked for me because I was a philosophy major and these were all people I was familiar with. And I was like, whoa, wait, that wasn't what I was taught. So it started to make me realize I was indoctrinated, not educated. And I started to have nice. a very different perspective. This was hard. It was hard to go back and look at like some of my college theses and, you know, papers and realize like I majored in existentialism, which was essentially a rebranding of Marxism. Um, yeah. You majored in existentialism? I did. I wrote my thesis on existential authenticity. Wow. I still, I mean, only recently did I even like just etymologically <laughs> examine that word because I could not figure out what I was like, what the hell is existentialism? And it's something like, well, what is it? It is, and this is not, and not all of existentialism, because there's existentialism, the, you know, authentic, pun not, pun, pun not intended, uh, with my thesis, but there is the authentic, you know, notion of existentialism, which is the, you know, question of existence and the purpose of existence. And that's essentially, you know, the what the, the scope of the study would be. However, these philosophers really took it as a rebranding of Marxism because they, you know, it, it kind of was a spinoff from Nietzsche, you know, God is dead. And so now man is at the center. Right. It has to be atheistic or you would have an answer to that already. Like Christianity gives you that answer. Yeah. So Kierkegaard was one of the only, like he was a Christian existentialism and which is almost in a lot of ways, but he was kind of like, a, it's kind of an oxymoron because really what they were trying to do was a very Gnostic premise where now man is at the center, man creates his own reality, right? Like both uh, Heidegger and Sartre had different variations of this, but like Sartre talks, about, uh, sorry, Heidegger talks about flungness, gewendefeit, uh, I'm going to mispronounce the German word, but essentially it means thrownness, where man is thrown into the world and having been thrown into the world, he's thus responsible for everything he does. You know, and Sartre talks about, uh, you know, this is where all the despair comes from because he's now responsible for everything. Um, but the the spin on it is that, of course, he creates his own reality. He creates his own destiny. Uh, man puts and creates his own meaning. Uh, and I, I, again, all these things, if there's not kernels of truth, then they would have no validity at all. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think that it really is a Gnostic Marxist rebranding of, you know, that yeah, it's, it's a Gnostic rebrand. But it the question itself offers an alternative to Christianity, which I think is a lot like Darwin was, you know, I feel like there was a big push to eliminate Christianity, which is stuff that you're talking about too. So I, because I always would, would say like, supposedly in the Middle Ages, the I, the question of the existence of, of God was like, you know, you couldn't even ask that question the way I discovered that the question of the necessity of government, like nobody even said, like, of course it's necessary. I'm like, well, can't we just ask that question? And the questions themselves are somewhat dangerous. You know, they they will change the way people think. I understand it's the, a fundamental question, but... but there's always a risk with it whenever you open any Pandora's box. But I mean, the you know, one of the primary tenets of the Torah is to question everything, including God, including the existence of God. So I don't reject, you know, nice. the questioning of even God or the or our existence or our purpose. I don't think that's what's problematic. I would say, though, that there are a lot of Jewish people who say they're atheists. Well, then I would not call them Jews. <laughs> okay. All right. Because, I mean, people say, I remember Max Kellerman said that. He's like, I support Jewish organizations. I'm Jewish, but I don't believe in God. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation. I think there... I was just wondering if the fact that you're allowed to ask that question and I'm not is like the origin of, it's not that I'm not allowed, but like I was taught by my dad. I'm like, I'm like going on a spiritual journey. And he's like, what if you get hit by a bus? You're going to go to hell. No, no, no. Well, I mean, I, I still think that you question. It's not a matter of, because even if we take the Christian premise that God still wants you to choose him, right? That's why he gives you free will. So I, yes. And you can't choose if you if you're not willing to explore and ask the question because then you don't really have a choice. That's right. the whole premise of free will. That's right. And he gives us reason and the understanding of between right and wrong, which is why I think you can be held accountable if you die in the state of sin or whatever, because he gives yeah. you the tools to evaluate that and the imperative. Yeah. So yeah, I agree with you. I went, I I I agree with you and I went down that journey, but 
I have to just, before, like, I have people who will totally email me like, what are you talking about? We're allowed to question. And I will say, the priest who listens to me, because I would tell him I have doubt, I have doubt. And he's like, questioning is the is the basis of knowledge yeah. and understanding. And, it's, and it is a faithful thing to do. So I take back my generalization, but I do stand by my personal experience with yeah, my father. No, I, well, I think your father was more like, you know, there's the saying, the, the old adage, there are no atheists in foxholes. Right. I think that's really yes, what he was definitely. alluding to when he was trying to, you know. Yeah. I mean, he was in a ship and like torpedoes would whiz by when he was 18. So I think that his he probably... I'm sure, to some extent. Right. Yeah. Good point. Um, Thank you. But yeah, so why was I able to open my mind to the possibility that I was uh, indoctrinated and uh, programmed and, you know, definitely susceptible to all this propaganda? Um so, yeah, it was in 2020. So the Frankfurt School was kind of like that one big, that really did uh, did a big paradigm shift there because I used to, I spent a lot of my childhood, I was always surrounded in a sea of leftists and I was never on the left. But then as I got a little bit older, like college, and then of course in the entertainment industry in the middle of New York City, I, I just thought it'd be easier if maybe I wasn't like, you know, <laughs> if I was le- like at least like left of center somewhere, that life would just be easier socially. And so I yes, used to say, right? So definitely. I used to just say like, I'm socially liberal, but I'm fiscally conservative. That was just, it was more palatable <laughs> to people. Yes. And then they didn't see me as some yeah. like crazy demonic Nazi, you know, like, so I, I mean, really, I, I, I can tell you stories. Like I had a friend who, when I came back from uh, New York, from, from LA to New York, and she introduced me to her new friends. She's like, I warned them. Don't worry. Like, Courtney's a Republican, but she's a really nice person, I promise. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm not really sure why. Were you were I you a Republican? Republican? Like a card? I was like actually, Republican? yeah. Well, so and so that was a big uh paradigm shift then. It was the Frankfurt School. And then in 2020, um, yeah, so someone had a friend of mine had asked, uh, I ever heard of Dr. John Coleman? And I said, no. And it was midnight, literally, at that point. And I was like, he sends me, he said, just watch this video and then call me back. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I watched this video. And needless to say, we were up to like 4.30 in the morning that morning. And I wow. started reading all of his books. And of course, the one that I found on Amazon was retailing for almost $5,000. I'm like, why don't they want me to read this? And so I found the PDF and, you know, for those who, nice. you know, don't like that, like, I'm pretty sure he's no longer with us. I cannot find any evidence of his passing. John Coleman. Yeah, he, he was, I mean, a couple of years ago when I actually subscribed to his newsletter, I emailed them and it was like, his newspaper is full of absolute garbage. And they were like, oh, but he doesn't agree with it. He's, you know, whatever. So he was alive. I couldn't find anything know, but past he was 2012. Old. That seems to be the last of... I'm sure this was after 2012, but maybe not okay. very long after 2012. Which is interesting because there was an interview uh, with uh, Alex Jones, and I have the audio version of the third. It was a three-part series. I have a video of the first two, but I, the audio of the third one. And they, he, they, he actually asked, like, are you worried about them coming after you? I mean, he definitely was older at this point, but uh, he said no. And he said, uh, Tavistock has already approached me several times. Um and uh, he's like, you know, we we basically agreed that, you know, that he'd that he'd stop. No, that 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 they weren't he they weren't going to come after him anymore. Is kind of what he said. But who knows? I don't I don't claim to have any kind of. He says that he was intelligence. Well, no, he he claims he was a retired uh, MI six. Yeah, which yeah. is what how he got access to so much of this uh, information because he had access to those uh, you know private libraries. So yeah, it's so hard to believe that anyone does go rogue, but he does seem to have gone it rogue. It does seem that way. So I went down that rabbit hole. And then, of course, so much of it really was like, it was very much a shock for me because it was a convergence of all the things I was so immersed in, psychology, philosophy, and arts, entertainment industry. Right. So for me, that was like, whoa. Um, and so I started just reading whatever I could. I ended up reading, you know, m- several of his books. Um, and then, of course, my uh, now fiance was he was one of those people who was like, you know, like you, like a Ron Paul person. He was awake long before I was. And he kept like planting. He was very patient with me, um, but he kept planting seeds. But the thing is, this is why I say to people, just keep planting seeds, because I honestly don't know if all those seeds that I had that were planted earlier hadn't been planted. I now, because I, I had a very different perspective 
Um, and because it was just a different time in my life, you know, my father also had passed at this time. So um, I just, I was in a very different place. And now he's planting these seeds and I'm like, I can connect these dots. I've heard this before. This is familiar. And I was in a place where I was ready to hear it. So that was very long-winded. I apologize. But but I think it's good. No, I, I totally think that. I think people need to understand true. that you can't like, somebody's not ready to hear something until it's like a soil has to be fertile before the, mm-hmm. the seeds can be planted and something's going to sprout. And and the other thing is they sometimes will figure out later that you were right about something. That's happened. I've had people come to me telling me like, I thought you were legit crazy. Thought you were crazy. Yep. And then COVID happened. Right. You don't get that too often, but I've had it happen. And I've had it's usually years later. That's I was actually taught in radio to refer to that stuff. Like it sounds braggy. I'm like, I told you, but they told it, they told us and right, like tell them that you like listening to you can get them ahead of whatever. Yeah. So I got into that habit. But anyway, it's that I wasn't raised to like that's all a lot of the things you learn on radio are braggy and I don't like it. But that was one of the things they were like, people need to know that you that you called it. Yeah. That's really interesting. Because it gives them faith in you and then they want to hear what else you have to say. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. 